Every band hopes to carve out their place in history. They try whatever they can to further their careers, hoping to become household names. Whether that be through the use of costumes or gimmicks or exciting live shows or, of course, their music, they hope to draw a crowd large enough to pay for their big mansions and sleek cars. Our story, of course, has all these things, but this looks at the rock band before the rock band. Their grassroots campaign to become the loudest, gnarliest party band in the United States. With a flamboyant frontman, a superb bassist and drummer, and a legitimate guitar prodigy, they were destined for greatness. This is the origin story of the group that saved heavy metal, Van Halen, right here on On In 5. Hello and welcome to On In 5. Thank you for joining us. My name is Anton Ryder. I'm joined by my friends Ethan Bonin and Austin Thomas. How are you guys doing tonight? I really like that dramatic pause. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. This episode is all drama. Oh, it so is. So much yeah. drama. Oh my God. Uh, it's uh, hot, hot drama. This is, uh, we haven't done a real band in a while. I was mm-hmm. thinking about that. We've we've done a lot of artists, yeah. Uh, not a real like group in quite a while, so this is kind of fun. We're we're getting back to basics on this one. Yeah, yeah. we went from Alanis to Beethoven. Yeah, God, here we are. Yeah. This is gonna be like almost reminiscent of like the GNR days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. that's what I did. I think the last <laughs> band we did was like Fleetwood Mac. Or MCR. Because then it was fifty. Oh yeah, MCR. You're right. Yeah. And then yep, it was yep. like, but you know. Yeah, nine, yeah. Nine, it's been pretty we artist heavy. We did a lot of a lot of artists, yeah, which is fun. But it's 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 cool to find out um, exactly how how the band came to be that we're speaking about tonight, and that of course is the party band of the '80s, Van Halen. Oh, Tony, man. I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I did ask. I said, "How are you guys doing?" No, I know you did. That's why I got to it. Oh, okay. oh, it wow. sounded sarcastic. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It's just, I forgot what you said to me. Delayed payoff, and you you so, just totally took away from the whole main point so of this episode. Anyway, Van Halen. <laughs> what if Tony worked up such a dramatic entrance for it? Such a well-worded lead-in. Oh man, you are patronizing me. Okay, so let's no, no, no. Let's get into it. So to tell the whole story of Van Halen, we have to go way back, far before they were playing to sold-out arenas and stadiums, and even before they were rocking backyard parties and getting well acquainted with local law enforcement. To get the full story of Van Halen, we have to travel to Amsterdam, Holland, where Alexander Arthur Van Halen was born on May 8, 1953, two years before his younger brother, Edward Ludwig Van Halen, joined him on January 26th. 1955. Oh, Beethoven made his way into this episode, too. How about it? Yeah. Jan and Eugenia von Hollen, their father and mother, named their son Ludwig after Ludwig von Beethoven in hopes that it would inspire him to be a great musician one day. And I'm going to go ahead and say it worked. Yeah. You know, yeah, I'll say you're exactly right. It worked. This is a very <laughs> happy accident for us because mm. if there's any band from the list we've covered before or could cover... To, as, as, as a fitting follow-up, I th- think this is it. Yeah. It's almost like we're like tapping into some kind of magic between this episode and the last. <laughs> we <laughs> no. are it. 
we had we had absolutely no idea that the, even this small link was here. We had we had zero. Idea. Nope. So yep, just yeah. kind of a fun coincidence. God, it works because he's <laughs> so something. The, he's something else. Oh, he's he's Eddie. he's a prodigy. He's a master. Okay, so their father was a successful concert musician playing the clarinet and saxophone and was even forced to play for the Nazis after they took over the area during their reign. You ever heard of a highly renowned clarinet player? Because you have now, baby. <laughs> he loved jazz. Like, he was absolutely about it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, he's paying, paying the bills. After the war was over, Jan traveled around Europe and Asia with a uh, jazz band, including Indonesia, where he met and married Eugenia von Beers, bringing her back to Amsterdam after six years in Indonesia together. Music was everything in the von Holland household, and at the age of five, Jan and Eugenia put both Alex and Edward in piano lessons with the hope that one of them would one day become a world-class pianist. Their parents hired a man named Stanley Calvitis. Mm. He was a professional pianist from Russia, and he graduated from the Imperial Conservatory of St. Petersburg, wow. which is where Tchaikovsky was trained. So Highly renowned. Very renowned. And they were really banking on these brothers being very different musicians <laughs> than they become. <laughs> you know, Stanley actually has a pretty wild story himself. I found his obituary from 1976. He served in the Russian military as a musician, then served in the United States Army as a musician as well, like during World War One and Two. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. That would have been a whole different story in the Cold War. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, though their music career began here, their knowledge of music had started way before this, when Jan would bring both his sons to the bars he was playing at, where they would hang out with the musicians until late into the night. This music was their life from day one. Reminds me a bit of uh, Frankie from MCR. God, I I knew we had covered someone with a similar story and I could not figure out who it was. I remember (laughs) reading it about it. Could have been Tony. He did that too. I did do Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Tony did spend a lot of time in the bars. (laughs) Not a talented musician. (laughs) Yes, you are. Oh, this, this whole series is, even this episode alone, it it has connections to a lot of episodes we've done. So oh, yes. It's, it's yeah. really weird how many connections there are. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> it's pretty weird. It's pretty far reaching too. By the early 1960s, though, America was beginning to look pretty good to the Von Holland family. Eugenia had some family in the States. So in 1962, they decided to pack it up and head to the U.S. They had no money to pay for the trip. So Jan agreed to play with the ship's band to pay for their lodging on the boat. And Alex and Edward would even join in sometimes, having already played the piano for years at this point. A couple days later, they landed in New York, then took a train all the way to Pasadena, California, where they settled into a small home after staying in apartments to build up funds. And at this point, Jan changed his name from Von Holland to Van Halen. There it is. Mm. They had nothing at this point. Eddie said that... um, in one of his interviews, my father was 42 years old when he left Holland and came to Pasadena with $15 and a piano. Think about how many Florins that is, though. Oh, that's <laughs> either a lot of Florins or not very or many no, Florins. I don't, I'm, I'm saying think about it. I don't know the answer. <laughs> think about it. We look it up. <laughs> Noel Monk actually mentioned that John was not exactly the best with money. Uh, yeah, that is very true. Noel yeah. Monk being their future manager. Yeah, future so, tour manager. That. That's the book I read, which is very not useful for this episode. Also, future actual manager. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> there we go. So Jan knew no English and agreed to do any odds and ends jobs that he could find, including being a dishwasher for a hospital where he had to walk six miles each way just to get there. He also didn't know how to drive a car at all, which was an issue because they only rode bicycles when they lived in Holland. <laughs> how fun. How Why fun. would you leave a place where you ride bikes everywhere? Weed is legal and prostitution is okay. <laughs> Man, it's the 60s. Everyone's smoking weed. <sighs> yeah, it's Everyone's fine banging anyway. everyone. Yeah. Free loving, my friend. The war on drugs wasn't here yet. Fat tires from Holland, right? Belgium. I don't know. Belgium. Yeah, same difference. Belgium white. <laughs> Whatever. I'm drinking Voodoo Ranger. Belgium. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Awesome. <laughs> but, so he, but he wanted to keep his sons playing music, so he continued to find them piano lessons. But their interests had started to divert to something a little different. They were somewhat outcasts at their school at first because they also knew very little English, but they used their piano talents to gain friendships with their classmates and even more met other musicians to form bands. Their first band was a group called the Broken Combs, where Alex played the saxophone and Edward played piano, and they were maybe 12 and 10 respectively at this point. But this was the mid-60s when the rock movement was in full swing, and both boys wanted to try something new. So they decided to get a paper route and began saving for instruments of their own. And eventually they saved enough that Alex bought a Tiesco Del Rey. It was a cheap Sears guitar that maybe costs $100, and Eddie bought a cheap four-piece St. George drum kit. Only drum set I ever purchased was a, th- was a three-piece first act, and it was a it was a real piece of crap. Yeah, I remember that thing. I think you're selling it a little short. <laughs> we literally <laughs> duct taped the words Pearl over the first act logo on the bass head. Yeah, that's, makes that's it a pearl. definition of fake it till you make it. <laughs> I love it. That makes it a pearl to anyone that sees it and doesn't ask <laughs> yeah, any questions. So, it's a purple so and, and pink tape. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. That's oh, great. Man, take me back to the attic. <laughs> <laughs> so they both began playing their instruments, but after a bit, Alex was struggling on the guitar and Edward was doing the same on the drums. It came out that Alex had actually been sneaking and playing Edward's drums and Edward had been thinking about trying Alex's guitar. So they decided they were going to switch instruments. And when they did, they both instantly knew that the instrument they had was the instrument for them. Alex said he kind of had a feeling early on that this would happen because he was okay at guitar and he said he could play bar chords and all that, but his fingers Mm -hmm. were never fast enough. And he said, you know, you either have it or you don't. To some degree, it's not just going to show up eventually. And God, if that ain't fucking true. And he (laughs) he basically said as soon as he saw Eddie pick pick up a guitar, he knew it was going to happen. Yeah, I think he was uh, pretty much a natural at this. Yep. And I can understand that because I always say the drums are the most barbaric of all the instruments. (laughs) 100% get that. Um, But you have to remember that they were both classically trained, so they knew about music, and so their talent on their instruments bloomed as soon as they got them. God, just imagine the angels singing as Eddie picks up that guitar. Everything is right in the world at that exact moment. That... Is it curious? What? Very curious. <laughs> that's a uh, that's the line from Harry Potter when Harry picks up the wand. Oh yeah, okay. Oh, Phoenix. Okay, I got you for drawing that, that connection yeah. for us. Thank you. So <laughs> much. I didn't get that. Oh, no. I'm actually kind of disappointed I didn't. <laughs> well, isn't well, it? Yeah, you know, I don't know. You're right. That's fine. That's fine. Yep, I should have. I'm sorry. I'm here. I'm here for it. So Jan and Eugenia knew the time on the. 
There we go. Yeah. We're bringing there it. There we go. <laughs> so Jan and Eugenia knew that their son's time on the piano was likely quickly coming to a close as they knew their boys wanted to be rock stars and not pianists. The uh, pianists can be rock stars too. I don't know. So the family was so broke at the time that they couldn't afford an amp to go with the guitar at first. So Edward's first time playing with the guitar was spent with him playing it pressed against their kitchen table so the guitar would reverberate off the wood to be louder. This sounds like an actual nightmare. Playing an electric without an amp is the worst. Oh, it sounds horrible. Yeah, listening to an electric without an amp is the worst. <laughs> yeah, the Tony and Austin both know because I will play my guitar through my interface without distortion or anything on it. It's terrible. No. Yeah, we, I wasn't attacking you. You made it weird, but okay. it's just true. <laughs> Uh, Eddie also said that he would go to Dow Radio in Pasadena, which kind of sounds like it was similar to a Radio Shack. And he rigged up a plug so that he could just take his guitar with him, plug it into any of the stereos, and then he turn it all the way up. So I can only imagine he got kicked out of there a few times. Oh, yeah. Like, But that is a theme that we obviously see for the rest of his life. If there's more volume available from the amp, it ain't loud enough, baby. <laughs> Uh, another thing that we will see throughout Eddie Van Halen's entire career is he just builds shit. Oh, and yeah. Makes it his own and just rigs something up when he's, he's an just electrical engineer, dude. Incredible yep. shit. Yeah. So, yeah. This is not a surprise that he just made his own plug to go <laughs> go plug into anything he could. It's crazy because, it so like, much. it seems like there's really no theory behind it, but he's just doing stuff. Oh, yeah. That's it. I, don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's trained at all. I think yeah. it's just like, I think he just messed around yeah. to the point where I think he kind of got it. Goofing with electronics and figuring it yeah. out, which yeah. Very cool. it's insane to me because I am going through like heavy electronics right now and it's kind of frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Well, you well, just do it because you like it, not because you want to get paid a lot. Yeah. People also said anytime he picked something up, he was good at it. Not yeah. even just yeah. guitar or instruments. He was like, just good at weird. Just one of those people. Understanding yeah. of anything he touches. Makes sense. One of those he people just, I hate deeply because I'm not good I, at anything. I hate that I he love. He can solve any crossword puzzle out of the gate. No <laughs> just issue. looking yeah. at it. He's like, yeah. oh, oh, this, 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 this. He can, <laughs> take, he can take one look, close his eyes, and finish it. Good for you, Eddie. Wow. Rest in power. Wow. That's a fact, too. Oh, I've heard. Who is he? Will Hunting? Jesus. Calm down. <laughs> All right. Okay, Tommy. <laughs> I think we I think we need let's to move get, along then. Let's the, get back on to the <laughs> But eventually, they ended up getting an amp for him as well. So once they had their setup, they began forming bands with whomever they could find. In 1967, Edward's sound changed when he found the band Cream, led by, of course, Eric Clapton. In the white room with black curtains is the station. Oh, man. God, so good. Cream, cream <laughs> so did good. a little something to all of us. Cream oh, so man. good. We weren't really they, around he, for They it, show but... up a lot, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they do it, man. It does not go away. <laughs> Why would they? So, he began practicing day and night to try and learn Clapton's guitar parts. And remember, they had no tabs, no internet, no nothing at the time. So, he had to listen to the tracks on his record player repeatedly to try and figure out the guitar parts. Eddie and Alex would do this together because while Eddie became obsessed with Clapton, Alex also was immediately drawn to Ginger Baker in the same way. Yes, he was. Loved it. So, Edward was 12 at the time when he decided to do this and he was playing Eric Clapton stuff. So if that tells you 
how how <laughs> ambitious he was. You could just <laughs> sum that up right there. It's like yeah. playing the greatest guitarist of all time. Stop at twelve. It's fine. Right. Yeah. They they kept playing whenever and wherever they could, including still going with their father to play gigs at country clubs and bars. And Alex would actually step in and play drums for his father's band when they needed a fill in. And then the brothers would play between sets, passing around a hat for tips. And then both brothers began caring more about playing than they did about school. And by 1968, they were both skipping when they could to hang out with their more punk peers. And they were smoking and they were drinking. Living that mm. 1960s United States California <laughs> lifestyle. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yep. So, oh, yeah. SoCal. SoCal. And it's not quite dropping out, but we we will take it for this one. We'll count. Actually, they all go to college for a little yeah. bit. So. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Actually, stretch for higher. We'll give them a pass. <laughs> pass. <laughs> by 1969, they were zoned in on their sound, playing covers of bands like The Monkees, Hendrix, Zeppelin, 10 years after, and of course, Cream. They created a band called the Trojan Rubber Company with the two brothers and then bassist Dennis Travis. Edward would sing and do all the lead vocals for the band. They began playing all over wherever they could. It was around that time that Jan, who had just lost a finger in a freak accident, realized his sons definitely weren't focused on the piano. God, this whole thing sucks. Like losing a finger for a musician is... Mm. Obviously detrimental, but he loses it in the most freak fucking oh, accident it's way. It's like the PG version of Final Destination. Yeah, seriously, just one finger. But yeah, apparently their neighbor was the guy that distributed all the adult magazine subscriptions around their area. It was a, it was a different time, man. But one night he like left his trailer in front of Jan's garage and he went and Jan got home and tried to move it. And somehow it fell off. When he like went to lift the tongue, it like fell off and cut his finger right <laughs> off on the hitch. <laughs> yeah, he attained it. Like you God, know, Jan was a fan of the hooch. Oh, oh, he could have been loaded at the time. Yeah, I'm not gonna say it. Very much so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You find out that Jan, uh, the only time he could really talk to his sons is when, when he, he was trash. They were absolutely. Loaded. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's just dads, man. That's just dads being dads. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Father's Day. (laughs) Yeah, so Jan decided to lean into his son's talents. And so he took Edward's guitar as well as one of his own flutes to a music store and traded them in, as well as took out a loan for $800, which was quite a lot of money for the family, to buy the boys their own top-of-the-line instruments. A black diamond pearl kit for Alex, complete with his signature, Double kick bass drums. You know who else used a double kick bass? No one. No, Ginger Baker. Good point. Wow. <laughs> Very fascinating. Yeah, I can immediately draw the conclusion on how he got the inspiration right. for that. that and sense. then he bought a Gibson Les Paul for Edward which is a very nice guitar. And Edward would soon after buy himself a Marshall amp that became his baby for years. And they would use these through their time with Trojan Rubber Company, who were really beginning to make a name for themselves around the Pasadena area, even though they were just teenagers at the time. They would learn new, difficult music and continually wow their audiences with their feats. But it had to come to an end when Dennis Travis had to move away. Their sound had changed so much through their time with the Trojan Rubber Company that when they found a new bassist, their friend Kevin Ford for a short time, and then their friend Mark Stone, they decided they were going to change their name to Genesis. What an unfortunate pick for a name. Because tonight, 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 
<laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, do you love Genesis? Hell yeah. Genesis. That's the Genesis that you do know. Yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> Though they had a new name, they still blew everyone away. There was no real change in um in production for when they when they changed their uh changed their name. Everyone who saw them knew that they had some serious talent. They were still playing school dances and city functions, but this didn't slow them down at all. And it was around this time that they began a new venture playing house parties. They would practice in the houses during the day, and then they would play in their backyards during the night. The band was booming, and though Eddie, as he was now going by, was only 15 at the time, the community saw him as a budding prodigy on the guitar. He had no issue mastering anything he heard, and he would blow any other guitarist out of the water. He really did live up to the homage that he had for a middle name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. John's got to be proud. He changes the whole goddamn fucking he did man world yeah yeah i was gonna say oh, yeah. music industry but it's so much Just, more than that yeah <laughs> no it's yeah but in late 1971 disaster struck for the young band when eddie and alex were at a local record store eddie was looking through the newly released album section when he came across a record called nursery crime by the english rock band genesis <laughs> After this, they knew that they would once again have to change their name. Obviously, this was a little disappointing, but it really did not slow them down at all. And even mm-hmm. when Eddie found the record, he jokingly looked at Alex and he was like, hey, do you know we had an album out? <laughs> <laughs> like, I get just so mad, but also like, fuck. Well, I guess. <laughs> you gotta I gotta do it. Yep. Just, just, uh, yeah. Just a common name, too common of a name, I guess. So after some consideration, they landed on the name Mammoth, which they would hold on to for quite a few years. They continued to gain popularity in the area, still with Mark Stone on bass, Alex on drums, and Eddie on lead guitar and vocals, something Eddie was beginning to despise. He began to feel that he wasn't the strongest singer, and when he sang, he wasn't able to totally focus on his guitar playing. But he would continue to do it simply for the love of playing with his band. And though his singing wasn't the strongest, people loved to come see the group. Obviously, he's not a terrible singer since he's been fronting for a while at this point, but he yeah, you, Tony said it. You, he definitely needed to focus on his guitar playing more when he was mm. performing. Yeah. Just, oh. Well, and and he does he does backing vocals yeah. back when yeah. down the line. Like so, he still sings. It's just yeah, just not not his thing. And obviously, it gets way better when you can just focus on simply yeah. playing the guitar. You gotta let that light shine. Mm. They were getting more and more focused into the house parties, and crowds of hundreds would come to see them in these small suburban backyards, where the crowds would pay a dollar or two to get in, and then they could drink and smoke all they could find. Big underage keg parties in backyards. Honestly, Woo! this is this is Woo! just a scene straight out of a coming of age. <laughs> oh, count me in. Yeah, same. There's there's one story that in the book that was like like you said, right out of a coming of age like party scene. This kid mm. at their school threw a huge party at his parents, uh, and his stepdad even like helped him. And they said <laughs> over a thousand people showed up <laughs> because they had this like huge tennis court and like pool and everything. So uh they they had him playing there and they had like 10 kegs, I think they said. And eventually the po- a police helicopter shows up and starts trying to get everyone to disperse. And it's like from the yeah. book, just absolute 
chaos erupts. Like, what's that movie? What's that movie with the Project with the X? Crazy party. Yes, Project yeah. X. It's Project I mean, X. Yeah, it's like a seventies. Well, I mean, sixties. And <laughs> yeah. like Alex and Eddie in interviews have talked about it. And Eddie said at one point, like four cop cars got flipped over. Like a group of dudes, uh, like got a cop and took his handcuffs and handcuffed him to the tree with his own handcuffs. Just like 100% uh-huh. unbelievable if it wasn't just true. <laughs> yeah, totally. Just, uh, wow, how the times have changed. Yeah. Uh, how, the, how the times have changed. Uh, yeah, no, the, the the helicopter would come in and then they would shine on the stage. Yeah. This, this, this happens later because after um, David Lee Roth joins the band, mm. he he's playing, but uh, uh, helicopters come in and shine lights on the stage and he just like follows uses the helicopter it. right. He's like, this is my a, stage a, light. Like, yeah, like that's his spotlight is a, is a helicopter. It's God. awesome. Like I said, they were the party band, man. Oh, I wish I could have seen it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, these were like staples in the 1970s Southern California. And Mammoth was the premier band at these parties. They And like they would play these and any other events that they could. They had their instruments, but they also would have to supply their own PA to any event that they that they played, which they didn't own. So they rented it from whoever they could could primarily at this time a man named paul fry paul knew the band was good so he called them with an opportunity to play with the band which had just been signed at columbia records called mana they were a pretty unknown band and paul knew that mammoth had quite the following in the area so he told the band that they would open up for mana at the pasadena city college i sleuth just a little bit trying to find anything about mana and there's nothing not even with mm. van halen added to the search there's nothing oh man right where it hurts <laughs> i feel you <ya>. man <laughs> it's, it's uh yeah i think i found i think they have a i think they're on discogs because i think they put out one album but mm. they 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 flop pretty hard yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, there's a signed. hispanic band called mana that's true yeah that's mm. true that's very popular on google searches mm-hmm. um <laughs> So Paul also told them that they should think about their stage presence. While the band was incredibly talented, they weren't particularly lively and fun to watch. Paul told them that they should dress up more and they should move around more. So in late 1972, Van Halen showed up with their new outfits on and headed to the stage. Before, they had just worn t-shirts and jeans and desert boots. But now they had on suspenders and jackets, upping their appearance to look more like rock stars the rock stars that they were. Eddie stood by his amp and then began playing. He then walked to the front of the stage and began singing, and people were blown away by this. They had seen them play tons of times, but had never seen any kind of movement from the band. So many bands could take notes from this one piece of advice. Yeah. I I just have to reiterate here for a second. (laughs) Standing by a stack, starts playing, walks to the mic. Crowd loses their fucking mind, and you two are over here virtually sucking his wiener over it. Whoa, whoa! I'm just telling the story. I'm just saying. I'm just the surrogate here. Jesus, come on! Oh my god! You gotta sell it, Austin. At the time, idiot. At the time, he the man man took five steps. I'm not doing the. The man took five steps. Yeah, Yeah. and it's awesome. That's five more steps than he's ever taken. All right. Oh, I'm gonna need a lot more than that. Five trillion percent. Yeah. Okay. God, you're right. You guys might be right here. You guys might yeah. be right. Yeah, Austin, you and your leather jacket and your leather gloves and your leather pants and your, <laughs> and your, un- and your Under Armour outfit. Yeah, you get it. You yeah. know all about stage presence, yeah. right? Austin, hey. you know, you got to sell it. I was man. sweating it Bimbo. off in there. 
That's true. That's Bimbo. where all the weight loss came from. It's just <laughs> you. You look badass, so don't let anyone <laughs> tell you that. It was very cool. All right. Oh, okay. Well, we didn't need to <laughs> yeah, turn this into <laughs> me. I just I thought that I thought they overdid overstated oh, well, it in the book too. To turn back on you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Oh, Christ. I'm just here for it. So they were. Bl- <laughs> so the audience was so blown away by this, uh, like Austin, so rudely pointed <laughs> out, it was just a couple steps that they didn't even notice when Eddie broke a string in the middle of a song. Now, was this because they were so amazed or because Eddie covered it so well? We don't know, but that doesn't matter. All we do know is that this was the first time the play- the band played with a signed group and they absolutely showed them up. This does become a reoccurring theme. Oh, no <laughs> fucking shit. <laughs> no, really? Yeah. 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 After the concert, the band was obviously happy with the show, but they knew they needed something more after this. They felt energized with the wardrobe change and the stage movements, but they didn't know exactly what else they needed. Luckily, though, what they needed found them in a man by the name of David Lee Roth. Love him or hate him, I thoroughly believe they would not have become what they did without him. Yeah. I, there's no doubt that Eddie and Alex would have, they would have been some kind of legends in some other capacity, but it wouldn't, this this band was such a phenomenon and he had a lot to do with it. Oh, it was a perfect storm. He might not have been the most talented, but he was <laughs> the man, you know? Yeah, uh, you, you sound... <laughs> You sound like every single person who ever talks to ever talked to about him. <laughs> you know, he's just he, was, not, he, wasn't, he wasn't the best yeah. singer. He might not have been a good that's singer. Not everyone's I've sent you guys plenty of vocal cuts of just him and it's not great. Oh, it's it's known. Yep. It's no, known. Oh yeah, it's a very big topic of discussion. <laughs> not even discussion, conversation. Yeah. Is this, Honestly, is this a fact? There's no. If you yeah. ask three things about the David Lee or about Van Halen, it would just be like, yeah, Eddie's good at guitar. Uh, uh, they they play that awesome cover of "You Really Got Me." And David Lee Roth is not a good. Singer. Like that's it. That's what everyone knows. That's the elevated pitch of the band. <laughs> so David Lee Roth was born on October 10th, 1954, in Bloomington, Indiana, to Nathan and Sybil Roth. Nathan was an emerging ophthalmologist, basically uh, an eye doctor that can perform eye surgeries. So my, one step above an optometrist. My brain just immediately flashed to a family guy bit about a Jewish person who does a uh, LASIK surgery. This is the deepest cut. This is the deepest <laughs> yeah, cut joke we've ever done. So you can't even. Nobody knows what it is. You can't even show it. It's so true, though. I'm mad. I'm well, yeah, very, it can, yeah. great. <laughs> this God, is awesome. Well, could put be it on social deeper. media. I will. Yeah, I put, will. It on, put it on social media. That's Multi- the part of Jewish LASIK, $500. <laughs> Jesus Christ, <Right>. man. <laughs> awesome. It was a good attempt. I have devolved. That. I've completely devolved now. <laughs> From an early age, David was all about music. He was given a radio from his uncle when he was eight, which he would use to listen to soul music like Ray Charles, The Four Tops, The Temptations, and others. His father decided that his business would be more successful in California. So in 1963, the family moved to Altadena, which was just a couple miles from Pasadena, where the Van Halens were beginning to get their feet planted in music. 
His parents would split when he was younger after his mother fell off a horse and fell into a coma for a short period. And when she awoke, the relationship was strained to the point where it completely fell apart. So Nathan and David moved into what would become known locally as Rothwood. And when David started high school in 1969, the city, which had just finished up their civil rights movement and was trying to figure out all the integration, was busing students around the area to help diversify the students. And as such, David was bused to Muir High School, a predominantly black school, which helped further his love of soul music. Uh, David said when he was a kid, he was really obsessed with Al Jolson and he would memorize all of his songs all in dances and he'd be able to do the dances and uh, being and being able to dance to a song is something that he always drives into this band. Like, yeah, it has to be danceable. So he, he carried that with him. And as a brief aside, I had never mm. heard of Al Jolson. <laughs> so I looked him up and I was greeted with just a horrifying image. <laughs> this material is not one. It's not one aged well. Specific thing. All right, oh, what, it's is bad. It? what is it? I have no idea. I'm, Al I'm Jolson not. is the king of blackface. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, it's horrifying. No. <laughs> this it's the worst. Yeah. I think everyone's seen a photo of him because it's got all the it's like the, the quintessential the most stereotypical yeah. uh, black face. like very really uh, went for it huh and he was incredibly famous huh oh, it was just different time different so time. upsetting different time <laughs> you need to look up al jolson no because it's oh, bad it's like, i did watch a video that said apparently he did a lot of really good things for black people like he was very forward in like the movement to get them into entertainment it's but a, it one thing time. it doesn't look good does not look good. <laughs> it's a bad look. It's, it's bad. <laughs> so on top of that, he said he had been watching the late night shows where he saw the British invasion come stateside with, with bands like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and David Bowie. The Rolling Stones and David Bowie hugely influenced his eclectic fashion sense, and the Rolling Stones helped him develop his stage presence. And when anyone asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, he simply said, I'm going to be a rock star. There was never a single doubt in his mind, even when some pretty big names mm. turned their noses up at him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He remains yep, confident. Yep, yep, yep. You got to give him that. <laughs> Through anything. <laughs> he remains confident, yeah, at any point. He knew he's going to do it. So David had seen Van Halen at a few of their shows and knew that they were the band to be in. He eventually made his way to the Van Halen house in 1971 to tell the band that he was going to be their singer. So they decided they were going to try him out. They gave him a couple songs to learn by Cream and Grand Funk Railroad and told him to come back in a week. And when he did, he tried out and failed horribly. The band, mainly Alex, who did most of the talking, told David that he was bad. He told him to come back in another week and try again. Again. He did and failed again. And then after a third attempt of this, they told David it just wasn't going to work out. <laughs> Three attempts. Three attempts. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, they said that he was so bad that the second time after a couple of songs, Eddie was like, hey, man, I'll be right back. And him and Mark just left the room and Alex had to tell David, no, they didn't want him. Then he just begged his way back for a third attempt. Oh, yeah. Gave it to him. Still failed. Yep. Well, I think after the third attempt, he like asked for another one and and. Uh, Eddie was like, okay, he went to the piano and hit a note, and he was like, hit this note, and he couldn't do it. Yeah. And they were like, all right, no. He couldn't sing the note. Yeah, he's like, get the hell out of here. So, 
So Mammoth went on as a three-piece, and David was left to his devices. He decided he was going to make his own music group. So Mammoth was asked to play a concert for the Parks and Rec Department with some other local bands. And when they arrived, they were hanging out backstage, and they heard a familiar voice singing Santana's Evil Ways. David was fronting a new band called Red Ball Jet. They watched as he strutted along the stage, pointed at the girls in the crowd, and acted like his typical goofy, lusty self. And uh, the crowd, who were mainly Mammoth fans, they did not like that. Mm -mm. They threw beer cans at him and booed at him. But David didn't care one bit. Did not care. He said in an interview that the two things that always have fueled his music are fear and revenge. And he said, every time we go out and play, yeah, I'm having a great time, but I'm also dancing somebody else into the ground. So Mm. he didn't take this this rejection well, but... In some ways, he did exactly what he had to do. He did exactly the right thing without maybe meaning to. Well, no, actually, I think he did mean to. I think he had it all planned. He's like, I'm going to rub it in their face. (laughs) I think the stars all lined up the whole time, man. He knew exactly what he was doing. He's playing 4D chess, right? I think he was playing 4D chess a little bit, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think he was. Because otherwise, man, that's just stupid. Yeah, because he got got told no three times. (laughs) And he still (laughs) makes it. So the members of Mammoth were super surprised with seeing this because, like they had said, he couldn't sing. But he had the stage presence of someone playing to 30,000 people. Let me tell you, watching videos of this man performing live in the 1970s, he is he's just so mm. big on stage, too. Just He's <laughs> everywhere. And yep. He's dancing all the time. It's very entertaining. Oh, he owns yeah. it. He was doing the jumps back then. Yeah. yeah. He owns he's it. He's doing the, the splits in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He doesn't Wild. sound very Wild. great, but he owns it. <laughs> he, doesn't <laughs> he, need to. he doesn't need to. Does not need to. <laughs> so Red Ball Jet played more pop-driven tunes uh, over Mammoth thanks to Roth's influences. And though they were significantly less talented than Mammoth, they took themselves just as seriously, if not more seriously, than Eddie and Alex's band, practicing five nights a week in David's father's building after it closed down for the night. They eventually practiced and played enough to get to the point where David convinced his father to buy him a new top-of-the-line PA system for when they played shows. And so, for the next couple years, the two bands crossed paths from time to time, playing shows wherever they could. In high schools, backyards, even at one point, Red Ball Jet played in a church when the members brought the band in (laughs) specifically to show their congregation how sinful rock music was. (laughs) They had no idea. They played a handful of songs and it's it's a it's a funny as shit they played a handful of songs and went to take a break before going back on and one of the members like came into the dressing room and he was like one of these people just like pulled me aside and told me that they just hired us to show the evils of the devil's work and of course that made rock just pull his pants almost all the way down to where you could like just see the top of his dinger yeah and like went back out and did the rest of the set <laughs> they were getting some pubes <laughs> God, the shaft. Freaking ramped it up. I'm pretty sure you like acted more sexually on stage. Like he was more provocative still. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man. They they leaned into it. They said the people were getting like pissed. And at the end, they just like grabbed all their shit, rushed off, and went to the dressing room and went out, exited out the window. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Super cool. So they would do whatever they could to outdo each other as they had to continue to try and draw crowds. They would rent stages, stage lights, smoke boxes, and anything else that college age kids could come up with to show their showmanship. And Roth, 
never to be outdone, even took karate lessons to have a mid-show karate session, <laughs> complete with a spinning baton and fast kicks and punches. God, that makes so much sense. <laughs> Why he can it's kick wild. like that? Like, he is so flexible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, he goes past 180 yeah. degrees. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. He's good at it. It's like fucking Mac from Always Sunny, though. He's <laughs> fucking you doing gotta... random karate. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta assume there's a little influence there. Yeah, little, I do wonder. DLR intentional influence. <laughs> oh my god! Fucking David Lee Roth has given everyone on tour an ocular pat down for every show. <laughs> I assess the threat. <laughs> not, cleared him for passage. <laughs> oh, that's so fucking funny. All right, so he, along with his father, hired a live show consultant to help them up their live shows, which included a choreographed dance number. <laughs> they would do anything to try and make their show better. They hired a guy that had choreographed for the Sammy Davis Jr. show and the Carol Burnett show. Like, what the fucking hell? <laughs> like a real successful yeah. guy. Big Hollywood. It's wild. LASIK money, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it was like sixty dollars an hour to do. It, uh, it was a lot. Oh my God! Yep. But <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, but yeah, David's father, like Nathan, did not care. Like he he wanted to help out however he could. But as you're gonna find out, his father's involvement actually hurt the band, <laughs> as David said that his dad should get a vote in all things that the band <laughs> was involved in because Nathan was paying. And when the band members disagreed, Redball Jet silently fell apart in late 1972 <laughs> and all the while mammoth was in the other corner just putting on killer shows with their raw talent austin don't you love it when parents get involved with the band and try to make decisions for the band <laughs> oh it's a rock solid strategy <laughs> we're getting a little close to the chest here so we're just, uh, it's a rock solid strategy keep going <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> so now David was bandless and his main goal was to try and get into another band. Mammoth, who by this point had added Jim Pusey as a keyboardist to broaden their sound and their musical horizons, was still playing their shows on an average of five nights a week. And while it paid okay, they were not getting rich off it by any means. There's such a big difference between living in the Midwest and living in a more music-centric place. I bet it was pretty fulfilling to be able to play five nights a week even when i was in oklahoma city the most shows a week i could pull was like three and i was making no money god you gotta stop riding this train ethan let it go yeah this is you can't see it over the podcast but this is ethan fucking i'm just so sad i'm jealous and i just Uh, i'm right there with you though i'm envious of their opportunity yeah yeah honestly it'd be so fun yeah Oh, how fun it would be for the first year. (laughs) (laughs) Milk it. And so on top of that, they had to continue to rent equipment, mainly a PA. They'd rent it from whoever they could find that had one for a small fee, usually around $10 or so. So they were going to rent a PA for a show from a regular lender when the price increased too much for their liking. So Alex got David's number and called him to rent up his. And so... Uh, David agreed, and this went on for a couple months before Alex and Eddie sat down, and Alex suggested that since Eddie wasn't the greatest singer and Eddie didn't like to sing anyway, they should just have David sing for them. And then they would have a dedicated frontman whose stage presence was absolutely killer, and they wouldn't have to pay for a PA anymore as it was a package deal. This would be the best opportunity for Eddie because he could finally showcase his guitar skills without having to sing in between. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, man. It was perfect. 
and uh, and Roth was manipulating them as well, a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, mm-hmm. I'll say. He had been telling the band that if they just let him into their parties, then they could use the PA system for free. That's how it started. And then after a little bit, it slowly transitioned to, well, if you let me hang out backstage with you, then uh, you can use my PA. And then it was, well, if you let me sing a couple songs for you during your set, then you can use the PA for free. So it was just a natural transition to let him join. He basically let the band get to know him so that joining would be easier. The <laughs> I keep wanting to make fun of him for just like forcing his way into this band and literally only being brought on to save money after they openly said they thought he hadn't gotten better at singing by this point. But <laughs> my, my net worth is not very close to 60 million. So <laughs> I'm, I can't I'm not gonna. You're getting there, buddy. You're getting closer. <laughs> yeah, I'm inching up there. Is a little closer. <laughs> inching right up so there. in the summer of 1973, David Lee Roth joined Mammoth, making it a five piece. This was met with mixed results at first, with some people thinking the band was ruined with the addition of David. It's Mammoth, not Mam Roth. I will. I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, might, you actually might want to go and then just Bye. turn right around and come back with a couple more of those singers. All right, I'm going. Yeah, I'd, like to, I'd like to put in an order for two more of those <laughs> stat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, That's great. That's awesome. Hot and fresh. That's the. That's the that's the high quality content we get paid the boofy bucks to provide. <laughs> that's what you've come to expect, and that's what we're here to deliver. I don't, I don't know what you would ever expect from me. <laughs> so, so the band stuck by with their decision to add David, even sticking up for him when people said that they should get rid of him. With David now comfortably at the helm of Mammoth, they continued to play shows wherever they could. And while some diehard fans still grumbled at the addition of David Lee Roth, the audience continued to grow over the years they played, mainly the female audience. Mm -hmm. See, David had a ton of sex appeal, and the ladies loved to watch him strut his shit. Long hair, big old manly patch chest hair. This dude was exuding sexual appeal. God, I don't know how I feel about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm a little woozy. Uh, God, Mammoth had a really decent following, though, and that following was very hostile to Roth for quite a while because he at first was the enemy when he was in Red Ball Jet, and now he's changing their band into something else. Yeah, man, there were like, there were probably like three or four really big bands in the LA area. There was uh, Mammoth, there was Red Ball Jet, which had gained popularity. Um, There's a band called Uncle Sam. Uh, There was a band called Snake. Mm-hmm. And I think there was one more, like like Quiet Riot was around at this time. <laughs> um, uh, the boys were around Come at this time. Like there were, there the were, <laughs> yeah. So there were, there were some big bands around, but like to have two of these bands come together, especially ones that had clashed so hard, was um, it was it was a turbulent it's period. Conspiracy, for the band. So, man. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the addition of adding a quote unquote enemy into the band is something that we will see happen again for the band in eleven it's years. Not mm-hmm. Mam Roth. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! <laughs> Thank you. you. You don't get to fucking toot your own horn. <laughs> Milking it, milking it, milking it. (laughs) So they would play these house parties, setting up in the backyards, and then the person who threw the party would charge a dollar or two to get in. It was usually a teenager or a college-age kid who would use their parents' house when the parents went away for the weekend. Risky business style. I dig it. Just sounds so fun. There's no TV. There's no video games. Mm. Like The only things you can do are just like 
go to party. Yeah. It's awesome. The only thing That's you awesome. can do is rock and roll. Fucking woo. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Baby. <laughs> it's finally back. It's back. <laughs> back to base. Oh, I man. It. I can't wait to hear it in post, too, because you yeah, did it you loud just, enough that you cut, cut all the way out. Oh, God. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. I can see you doing it. I knew what it was. I knew. I knew. <laughs> hey, I'm looking at my audio track. It looks God, I'm ready for it. <laughs> How about that? So, so they would advertise using flyers or just word of mouth that Mammoth would be playing somewhere, and then huge crowds would turn up, usually in the thousands. They would cram into the house and then the backyard, and then they would drink from the kegs, they would smoke weed, and they would snort coke if it was available. The person throwing the party would usually have to try and prevent the band from going on stage because they were so loud and so aggressive and, and, and riled the crowd up so much that, um, that when they got started, no matter basically they would have like 15 minutes before the cops mm-hmm. would sh- show up and just shut the whole party down. <laughs> and the crowds would scatter and they would see if they could find another house party. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. The cops showing up was not the end of the night. It was the end of that party. <laughs> oh, shit. Freaking, it's the cops. Freaking rock and roll, man. Another, another house. So Let's go. Sounds so fun. So this was the mammoth life for a while. But they knew they had to expand where they played, so they tried getting into nightclubs around the area. And eventually they played at a club called Posh, which was a little club in Covina, which was near Pasadena. They were told that they were going to have to play five 45-minute sets a night, no originals and only pop hits, and no duplicates. So they had to expand their repertoire. So they played their show, and it went off without a hitch for a little while, but the owner kicked them out for being too loud and playing some unusual tunes, which weren't to his liking. They were supposed to be playing top 40s, but they started playing some Sabbath, and I think this was the show that they slipped a couple of their own songs into it, and eventually the owner pulled the plug on the whole thing. So Alex just started soloing on his drums, because fuck that guy. (laughs) Fuck. God bless the acoustic drum yep. set. God. What <laughs> so Fuck him. Can't unplug me, man. <laughs> and around this time in the fall of 1973, the band once again would have to change their name after they received a cease and desist letter from another band in the area, also called Man. These guys just couldn't catch a break. You got to go with something a little bit more unique, right? Yeah. 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 So I don't uh, know what yeah, I don't know what you could what, go what, with. What but... could they go with? Wow. I don't mm, know. Let's find out. So, yeah, Mammoth, the other Mammoth, apparently got the rights to the name, so Mammoth had to change their name once again. They thought about going with the name Rat Salad at first, which was named after a Black Sabbath song, but they were afraid that that would make them seem like a Black Sabbath cover band. But they did have Black Sabbath covers in their arsenal. You can you can actually find oh, yeah. a live performance from 1976 of Tomorrow's Dream by Black Sabbath, which wasn't on any of their albums as a yeah. single. Yeah, they they uh they they. Like we said, they did tons of covers, and Black Sabbath was pretty influential to them, so it makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And so David threw out the name Van Halen. He said it had power, it was simple, and it was unique, as no one else could steal the name of the two brothers who started the group. This is one huge thing about Roth. While he obviously loved the spotlight, he was really focused on what would propel the band as a whole, and he knew this name had all kinds of appeal, and God damn if he wasn't right. Oh, God. it's... It's an incredible band. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent job. Genius. Oh. 
it rolls off the tongue smooth. It's it's easy to remember. You can't steal it. Oh. I'm sure at the time, I, I really th- as having it as your last name, you're like, ah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. No, like, it was yeah. it was Eddie and Alex like didn't really like it at first. They they thought that it would make them seem really conceited for naming the band after themselves. Mm-hmm. But um, but David convinced them. He also said that it 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 was cool that it it sounded like you know like Santana or or Jimi Hendrix. Like it was just a. This is this is us. Yep. Boom, right there. So so they they went for it and thus Van Halen was born. They continued to play shows wherever and continued to try and get steady gigs at clubs in the area. They tried to up their image mainly due to David's prodding to get a more flamboyant look, much like what Paul Fry had done years earlier. David was also the one to try and wow the crowd any way he could, including having Eddie wear a pair of disguise like Mark Mark's Gaucho like uh, uh, type of you know the the regular disguise. Isn't it glasses. Gaucho Marks? Yeah, there we go. That's right. <laughs> uh, you got it. Mark's Groucho. That's what I'm looking for. Call it a Groucho Marx disguise at this point in time. <laughs> that's fine. I'm, that's fine. Everything's fine. Um, so, yeah. So, he wore that during a Halloween show, but instead of the, the disguise having a nose, it had a dick where the nose should be. And then mm-hmm. David came up and began to fillet the dick nose on stage, which um, obviously, you know, 1960s shocked the crowd. Fucking prudes, man. I know. Oh, that's supposed to be free love. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? David Lee Roth just went to the local local spender. <laughs> dick glasses. You bought one of those hanging pair of jugs that bounce and sing. And <laughs> Can you put this suction cup dick on your nose, please? <laughs> so great. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the gag went off uh, not super well, but that's all right. But it shocked someone else. That someone else was Jim Pusey, the band's keyboardist. He couldn't handle the band's antics so in 1973 he left the band and they were back to a four piece uh guys i i think we need to talk about something that happened oh last God. night on the stage <laughs> what, what are you that? doing <laughs> I think that's how yeah, yeah, I think that's actually that's how he sounded. <laughs> and then, yeah, then they gave him a goddamn wedgie. Yeah. And gave him the boot. Like, we don't need a keyboardist, you dork ass dork. Yeah, they did that thing where they hold him up by the underwear and then they kick hung him in the butt on and he the goes flying hanger. away. Yeah, just on the, the coat hanger. They hung him by his underwear. No, you're talking about he something different. It. He didn't let me finish. Yeah, you guys are saying two different things. That's fine. It's fine. <laughs> All right, great. God. So they um, Christ alive! (laughs) So they were somewhat happy about Jim leaving as Eddie felt he was held back by the rigidness of the keyboard. He said he couldn't noodle around and improvise because he had to match match the keys and he also Mm. would get really annoyed because uh, Pusey had... PC had perfect pitch, and anytime Eddie's guitar would like start guitar. to go out of tune, he would yell, Tune, goddamn! And Eddie would just say, Fuck you, tune to me. <laughs> yeah, this is a little tense, so that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> but also, Eddie, Eddie and Alex had been playing the keyboard. They played the piano for like 10 years before they finally stopped. So, like, they were very well established piano players. Like, mm-hmm. They could have mm-hmm. been the keyboardist and, and if they needed it. So. Yep. Pretty, really uh, pretty one, good though. call getting rid of this old Pew's bastard. Yeah, old uh, pussy. He's probably a fine guy. Tune. I'm just trying he's to get closer, so, closer to the pussy, pussy word. <laughs> you got it, man. We'll get the joke. Actually, this is the last time we have, uh, we mentioned Yeah, pussy. I had to So if you're going to get yeah. the joke, you're going to have to get it in See now. a Pusey pussy. <laughs> this plane is leaving, my friend. Uh, <laughs> so, so in December 1973, they were approached by Mark Algori and Mario Miranda 
who said that they could help get the band into clubs. David originally turned them down, saying he took care of all the scheduling, but they gave him a card anyway. So they played some more house shows, which instantly got busted by the cops and turned pretty violent, including Mace, Nightsticks, Flipped over cop cars and helicopters. Yeah, that's that's the ones I was talking about. There they are. Yep. Not much has changed in the world of policing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I don't think I don't think they had any worse. fucking bear cats rolling in there popping off pepper spray. <laughs> Gotta right, get your yeah. MRAPs. <laughs> they didn't have MRAPs. Yeah. That's the difference. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they showed up in their riot gear. Um. So the band was somewhat used to all of this happening, though maybe not quite to this extreme, but they were seeing the writing on the wall that their days as as a house band at house parties was likely coming to an end as they were now on Pasadena's police shortlist. Though it would take some time, the band knew that they needed to start looking elsewhere. They also knew that the chances of them getting noticed by labels at a house party was really unlikely, so they looked towards established venues. So, David decided to call Mario Miranda to get some help. Mario said that his cousin had worked with the Beach Boys and he had a lot of draw, and he would use this connection to get them an audition at Gazzari's, a somewhat slummy club in the area, which was kind of the laughing stock of the Sunset Strip. Closed in 1993 after Bill Gazzari, the owner, died. R.I.P. R.I.P. Man, you had an R.I.P. in the outline. You took it out, and then you <laughs> said it. He wanted improv that. That's right. Ethan's always keeping us on our toes. I love it. Who knows? Who knows? Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bill Gazzari, man, it sounds like a slummy name. Oh yeah, it's, yeah, he does. It sounds sound like, like a... he's wearing a, a, a grease-covered white beater, gold chain. <laughs> yeah, he's got Adidas. On he 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 probably is he just fucking Carl from Aquatine? Yeah, yeah, and he's also combing the hair back a little bit. He has left. He is Carl. Yes, that's a great visualization. Yeah, there you you go. Thank you, thank you. He 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 actually got criticized for being a pay to play place. He's like one of the first. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So yeah, he's a greasy greasy scumbag. Greasy dude. Yeah. Uh, great pizza, though. So, compared to the rainbow, the troubadour, and the whiskey, no bands played at Gazzari's. But the band tried out anyway, practicing for weeks, for four hours a day, six days a week. And to their delight, they were offered three days a week at the venue. But around this time, the band made a tough decision. It was time to get rid of Mark Stone, who really enjoyed smoking weed during the shows and would sometimes go missing when they were supposed to be playing. He'd just disappear on a break, go smoke with someone, be the last person no back deal. on stage. Yeah, no big deal. And then, But then on top of that, he'd just get so fucking high. He'd start playing the wrong song or forget how to play a song. <laughs> like, I have, no, I have no opinion on marijuana, but there's a line, people. Listen. Come on. If <laughs> the best bass players know the way you play bass properly is you play the exact same Bart in every single one of your songs, so you don't have to worry about you getting it wrong. <laughs> if you always play the <laughs> same you part, you're not wrong. You're there it's to party if you're on the bass. It's smart. It's smart. <laughs> keep the low end, man. You gotta keep the you gotta keep the music low and your yourself fucking high as shit. So on top of that, he really cared about school. He's actually a very good student, like straight A yeah, student. Oh but yeah. he was becoming to studying to become a pharmacist and uh, would put his schooling before the band. So they held on to him until they could find a replacement, which came sooner than later when they played with a band called Snake, a trio in which the bass player sang lead vocals. 
Van Halen's PA blew before one of their shows that they were playing together. So they asked Snake if they could borrow theirs. And then the show went off without a hitch and Van Halen stayed to watch Snake play. Transfixed on the bassist playing and singing his high lead vocals. And a few days later, Eddie and Alex called up the lead singer to see if he wanted to come jam with him. And that singer was Michael Anthony. So Michael Anthony Soboleski was born on June 20th, 1954 in Chicago, Illinois. This is kind of a fun fact about the entire band. They are all transplants from other places into California. Well, if you get brought into it, then you can appreciate it more. Yeah. You're born into it. You don't appreciate it. That's right. God. I don't know if that's true. I just made that. It up. sounded Could good. Be. Thank you guys. Yeah, Thank it you. Sounded good. So <laughs> so he started going by Michael Anthony to make his name easier to remember and pronounce. His father was also a musician playing the trumpet, and Michael himself began his music career on the trumpet. But after the family moved to Arcadia, California in 1966, a stint of playing baseball, where the alleged ambidextrous Michael said he could bat with both hands, and a period in the marching band, Michael found the guitar and began focusing on that. But like others we've talked about on this show, he switched to bass because he knew that the bass would be much more marketable than a guitar. Not to mention this guy does have a killer voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. He began playing originally on a standard guitar by removing the two highest strings to make it a four-stringed instrument before eventually getting his own real bass. You do what you gotta do until... You can do what you want to do. Thank you, DJ Khaled. <laughs> <laughs> I think there, I think, I think there's another person we talked about that also did that. I can't remember who it was, but I'm almost yeah, certain right. well, one other I person. I've mentioned Max Cavalera from Soulfly a few times, and he yeah. only oh, okay, strings the top three thing. strings of his guitar. <laughs> that could yes. be it. Then. Um, so he loved bands like Cream, Led Zeppelin, ZZ Top, and Fog Hat. So he formed the band Snake, where they would play covers of the people I just mentioned, and they played covers just like every other band in L.A. Nobody really wanted to listen to original bands. Every band starting up was a cover band because everyone wanted to hear cover music. But once he saw Van Halen play, he could tell that they were the real deal. So when he got a call from the brothers to come play with them, he was intimidated, but he agreed. And the band was impressed with his bass playing, but they were super drawn to his high vocals. And so in mid-1974, they told Mark Stone that he was out and Michael Anthony that he was in. And finally, after five years, the classic Van Halen lineup had arrived. They did get an opportunity to record a tape just before they were going to kick Mark out. And at the time, they had to record playing live. So they just held on to Stone, recorded the tape, and then canned his ass. (laughs) (laughs) Ruthless. They were a business doing business. Yep. God. He said he was pretty bitter about it for a long time. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. That's That's what you do. Uh, So they were quickly taking over the L.A. party scene. Uh, Any event that was worth a damn, chances were Van Halen was there as well. They continued to play house parties and clubs, including Gazaris. They would also play other places when they had the chance, including the Rock Corporation, where the band helped bring in one of the first wet t-shirt contests in noted history. Uh, Dick Barrymore, who is in the United States Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, would beg to differ 1970 and may he rest in peace. Oh my <laughs> god. He rest in peace, Everybody's man. getting the RIPs. Yeah, everyone's fucking dead, man. <laughs> yeah, it's really sad. Super sad. So Dick sad. Barrymore sounds like uh sounds like Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore. I looked yeah, it up, porn, no connection. Porn. 
porn uh, alter ego. Yeah, wish. Where she's yeah. a dude. Barry Moore Dick, my friend. Whoa! <laughs> hey, I did not. Wow. Oh, oh my wow. God. Oh, wow. You are a genius. You are a genius. Thank God. you. Thank you. I'm getting another beer. tonight. <laughs> I need one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. so the, stru- the so the venue was struggling for money and decided that they should host a wet T-shirt contest. And the band that would play would be, of course, Van Halen. And since he was so charismatic, David also emceed the event. It drew a huge crowd and it was a hit. But after a girl showed her bare titties, mm. it was shut down. But. The- <laughs> But this was just an example of what the band did. They were the party band, and they catered themselves as such. I, I was. It was literally just the word titties, man. Slap the titties, the titties no, guy. I hate who we are so much. Man. Oh man. So this, but this, this was a big fiasco actually because. So one girl took her top off and then the rest did the same. And there happened to be uh, two undercover cops just waiting for yeah. something like this to happen. And we are seeing a steady buildup in tension between Van Halen and the Pasadena police that does erupt. Yeah, you could call it some you could call it something of an eruption. Yeah. I'm giving myself a thumbs down (laughs) so though they were gaining popularity with every show they still strive to learn new things especially Eddie who had spent his entire high school career pent up in his room playing his guitar for hours every day and by the time 1975 rolled around he was an absolute master but he still sought out new techniques and skills whenever he could you know it you know the one you know it's coming so enter his friend Terry Harry Kilgore. He was another guitarist in the area who jammed with Eddie from time to time. He had a connection with Harvey Mandel, who had played in bands like the Rolling Stones, uh, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, and Canned Heat. If you if you've been following, these are these that's a pretty big name with the Blues Breakers. This is a pretty strong connection. Oh yeah. Yeah, he ends up hosting Deal or No Deal too. Yeah. Did I say How- Howie? No. Okay, great. I, I just did it. <laughs> you spooked me there, my friend. <laughs> yeah. you, you have developed a pretty, it's pretty severe germ allergy. Uh, germ, yeah. Fear of germs, not a germ yeah. allergy. Dumb. Well, I saw his hair and everything. Yeah, it was actually pretty sad. <laughs> sad. Harvey Mandel. Uh, not so Terry went and talked to Harvey. And You're Harvey wondering gave now, him, aren't you? <laughs> so, and Harvey gave him some lessons, one of which included the technique Harvey had used in his time playing called finger tapping where you could pull your strumming hand up to the fretboard and tap the string lightly let me tell you as a as a guitarist this is a freaking game changer oh it it adds a lot of complexity to your music mm. you can sound cool. so badass if you can figure out how to tap <laughs> yeah yeah if you think yeah. about like the intro to thunderstruck it sounds so effing yeah. cool Super mm-hmm. easy. I can't play the smile guitar. Smile in your I sleep. Play that. Yeah. Silver. Smile in your sleep by Silverstein. You you figure out how to play that. You will get laid. <laughs> Great. Good to know. <laughs> I don't, good to, good I don't to know. know that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it might just make you sit alone in your room. But yeah, that's man. more likely. <laughs> that's the actual one. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> so Terry then took this technique and showed it to Eddie during one of their jam sessions. It wasn't a new technique by any means, but it was still in its infancy and wasn't used very often and it was used at the time maybe as like a filler note here or there so they would be playing a solo and then they would just bring it up to and it would just add one extra little note but eddie took it and mastered it over the next couple years using it 
first as others had with just the simple one one off notes during solos and stuff. But he knew he could do something big with it. He was really beginning to find his own technique and his own sound. And his sound was loud. Mm -hmm. He would crank his martial amp up to 10 every single time he played. No matter what, he always kept he always kept it at 10 because he really liked the sound that the amp produced only when it was cranked all the way up. But the problem was that he was getting kicked off stages for being too loud. So he tried to come up with a workaround. At first, he tried to use other amps, but his Marshall was his baby. You know, it really is the technique of that tapping. When you when you use the offhand to tap, you got to you got to really pull it off hard to make it resonate loud. That's the key. And I, 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 I do find this all really funny because this is not who gets a signature amp for for Eddie Van Halen at all. God, you really distracted from the point of like the paragraph <laughs> and then added back. the thing that like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Reel it back. <laughs> I, had, I had a thought and I had to get it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it actually. Yeah. But yeah, the Marshall didn't quite have the balls he's looking for, but he finds a big pair to put his name on eventually. Mm. Gotta get that PV, baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great. Wonderful. Fifty one fifty. Fifty one fifty. So he tried covering his amp with cloth and foam, and then he tried to point it away from crowds, but it did little to nothing to quiet the sound. So he decided to buy a second Marshall to mess with. But when he got it home, it was super quiet. At first, he thought that he had bought a bad amp, but he realized that it was a European model of the amp, which was 220 volts rather than the American 110 volts. So the amp was only outputting 50% power going through the 110 volt uh, electric uh, electric system, but it still sound it still had the same uh, the same balls that his his regular amp had. And so that gave Eddie an idea. He's a crafty guy. He's very crafty. God, like we said, he's super crafty. He did say it. Yeah. So God. after trying and failing to wire his amp directly into the house through a light switch dimmer, which caused the whole house's fuse box to blow, he reached out to a friend at an electric shop where he asked if they had something of like a, an electric dimmer. He didn't know what he was looking for, but he knew what he wanted. So the clerk told him that what he was looking for was called a variable transfer. It's actually just uh, it's two induction coils that are either you're stepping up or stepping down AC voltage and current. It's it's pretty cool stuff if you start looking into it. Fascinating. So check out check out my other uh, my other podcast. It's uh, it's electricity <sighs> with Ethan. <laughs> That's a terrible name. <laughs> it's terrible. It's stupid. That was just a dumb. I'm sorry. Electricity with Ethan. Come and listen to it. Good I'll teach you all about basic. electricity. I'll teach you about a light switch. I'll teach you about outlet. I'll teach you about Transformer, I'll teach you about fuse box. I'll teach, uh, teach you about amperage. I'll teach you about volts. I'll teach you about induction. I'll teach you about capacitors. I'll teach you about anything. Electricity. <laughs> right. yeah, the Ethan Ethan. Me. <laughs> oh man! All right, I'm sold. Actually, I'm. I've, I've yeah, come, I'm, we can make this something. I'm, actually, we're in. We're in. We talked our way into it. Talked ourselves into it. So, so after he got this variable transformer, he could control the voltage going to his amp, but still keep it cranked at full volume on the amp to get his signature sound. And the transformer became Eddie's volume knob. That's the only thing he would turn up when he went to different venues. He never touched his amp's volume again. He wired it up. It was now good to play in any venue he wanted. This is apparently pretty common now, but back in the day, it was revolutionary. And it was something that Edward didn't want the rest of the world to know about. Yeah, he hid it for quite a while, and that's just good foresight. Good thinking. 
God. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was really secretive yeah. about his play for a while, yeah. playing for a while. Yeah, he did. <clears throat> so they- <laughs> You okay, man? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just on that fucking page 14 slump. <laughs> Just they really do ramp up me. after page ten. They start Turns to get out you talk all the time. <laughs> you just get very tired. And so, and so they kept at it, still playing anywhere they could. And I know that all this sounds very repetitive, but this was just their lives for years, mm-hmm. like every band we've ever covered. Yeah, I, and I think that yeah. I, honestly, I think that's exactly what it is. I think it's just you have to put in the work to get discovered, and the work is yeah. just playing your ass off. All the time. Oh, yeah. what you sow, dude. Yeah. But all the time, they were getting bigger and bigger. They would play wherever they could. They would make a few bucks. They would put it towards the band, and then they would do it all over again. Five to six nights a week, every single week. But in early 1976, they were approached to play at the Golden West Ballroom, opening for a new touring band called UFO, which had a supposedly killer guitarist and ex-Scorpions player, Michael Shanker. The band showed up, and during the warm-up, UFO watched as Van Halen soundchecked, and UFO knew they were in trouble because they were going to have to follow these guys. So they decided to try and do a little bit of sabotage by sending wine to throw them off their game. But it didn't matter. Michael Shanker was very, he was a big deal. He was like the guitar prodigy at the time. And he was the main reason that people were coming to this show at all. Um, Basically, you know, people were fans of UFO, but it was because of him. Yeah. And so Eddie, he set out to this show with a purpose before it started. He called his friend Donnie Simmons, who was another supposedly very up and coming guitarist at the time in the area. And he was like, all he said was like, Donnie picked up and he's like, hey, it's Ed. And he was like, what's up? And he's like, I'm going to kick his ass tonight. And Simmons was like, what are you talking about? You're fucking crazy. You're not going to kick Michael Shanker's ass. Yeah. <laughs> you know what this reminds me Guess of? Guess what he does? He does. He does. It, it reminds me of that uh, showdown between uh, Beethoven and... Uh, oh, Fritz Schnabel? Yeah, whatever his name uh, is. Uh, yeah. Is it Shikanita? Chicken- no, that that's someone else. Yeah, he, he dedicates God, yeah. to Chicken Eater. I can't remember the guy's name. I can't name. remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, 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 who cares? Listen he's, to he's, it he's, and you'll find out. Yeah, but it's, find yeah. <laughs> when he when he turns the music upside down and and then just schools the yeah. guy, just yes. mops the floor with him. Oh, so God. cool. Um, and so when the time came, Van Halen put on a killer show, which they actually decided they were going to do an all original set for this, minus playing Kiss's Rock and Roll All Night as their encore. They had smoke bombs going off during their set and. This was where they played their debut of a rough version of the now famous Eruption. Imagine being able to be one of those people in the crowd and say you were there for the debut of this solo. Imagine mm-hmm. being there to not even hear this guy and you just heard like arguably the most famous guitar solo in history. Yeah. yeah. Just ever. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. N- having no clue who this yeah. person was or like not even being interested really if you were there just to see yeah. them. Oh, God. <laughs> I, 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 showed, so I showed my housemate wild. this solo earlier and uh, he's a big fan. <laughs> so it's, oh, it's good for anyone. Yeah. It's, <laughs> new fan. Yeah. New fan for Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Loved it. Yeah. And, and one thing we haven't talked about is Eddie got a big decommissioned bomb that he had a, like he had gotten it and then he hollowed it out and he put all of his like effects and 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 little uh machines and stuff like that in that and he kept it on stage with him whenever he played you're talking like a, a legit bomb cartridge like a shell yeah 
Yeah, you, yeah, you could find pictures of it. I promise this time for real. <laughs> not, not, like, not like Stevie Nicks' nose. Yeah, oh, they, no. these actually exist. But uh, <laughs> they said it was a practice bomb from World War II, and it was the same casing as the ones we used to do that horrible, horrible thing we did. Oh, yeah, well, they started it. <laughs> yeah, the Japanese they kamikaze <laughs> us first. We just did started what, it. We did what we had All to right, do. Let's, let's just keep going. Oh, my God. Harry Truman's terrible. Let's keep going. <laughs> oh dear. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So, Really, really <laughs> equal amount of response. Really. <laughs> oh, oh, God. God. oh, God. Um, yeah, so this this thing was just super cool. But but the reason I bring it up is because during his solos, he would turn around partially to mess with the effects that were in it, which would give him all of the cool sounds that you hear in the solo, and then partially to hide his techniques as he played. Van Halen blew the place away, and UFO knew they were screwed. After the show, though, Eddie was offered what he thought was cocaine, so he took two huge bumps, and then he headed to the stage to help tear down. But when he got there, he began to stiffen up and shake uncontrollably. He didn't know it, but he was overdosing on PCP. The band freaked out and took him to a local hospital, and the doctors said that if they had gotten him there a few minutes later, he surely would have died. God. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm a fairly rational person. But this sounds like an attempted hit to me. <laughs> he didn't even think about it. So, so rational. <laughs> like, and, man, and I I want to give like a little bit of fact and a little bit of background here and like more information to like juice up the story, but I'm also scared I'm going to like hurl us into the bones of <laughs> but yeah. I'll just I'll just go with it. So it is a little sketchy because yeah. Eddie knew this guy because they had bought coke from him on several occasions. Yeah. So he like he wasn't worried about it at all. And this so this guy was a little sound, sketchy. Yeah, you think like that, a straight hit. You think that the guy would have been like, oh, that's a that's a pretty big bump there you got, Eddie. Oh, you're going for a, yeah. you're going for a second one. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh no no no! I Actually, know you I like mean, to get Eddie, wet, Eddie Eddie Eddie. This is this is wet. This is wet. You should stop. No, he let him hit it twice. Twice, yeah. Oh uh, yeah, wild man, wild though. Luckily though, you guys whatever. remember movie Training Day? Nah, yeah yeah it. I do. He smokes the wet marijuana and yeah. he starts tripping on PCP. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's a cool movie. I don't, it's very cool. Movie. Yeah, we haven't brought it up in a long time. King, I still know very little King, about drugs. So. King Kong ain't got shit on me. <laughs> uh, Wonderful. Tony, you need to get cultured, man. I guess. Yeah, <sighs> seems like something I Scrub. need. So luckily, though, Eddie survived, and honestly, this like barely made him miss a beat. Like he even joked about it and said, like, well. Could you imagine if I didn't have all those brain cells die, like how much freaking more screwed I'd be? So he, yeah. he was fine with it. And then after they Good whooped sport. UFO, who by all accounts played terribly that night, they played at another venue, the Starwood. Unbeknownst to them, one of their fans was making connections in the background with some very powerful people. A band called The Runaways knew about local talent. And Gene Simmons of KISS trusted their opinion for local unsigned bands. He had just obtained his own record label and wanted to sign a new band. The members of the Runaways said that the two best bands in town were Van Halen and a group called The Boys, which has actually featured Mick Brown and George Lynch, the later drummer and guitarist for the band Dokken. So I feel like I should know Dokken, but I don't know a single song by Dokken. That's okay. I don't think I'd know about him either. Uh, this is just, I'm just uh, my my father-in-law loves Dokken. And so I'm just- Yeah, I, I looked him up and apparently they had a song in the first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah, they're, I mean, oh, they're, okay. they're a fairly popular yeah, they're, band. They're, it's just a yeah. 
Just, just a, nothing. They're just a hair metal band. It's fine. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the group told Gene that they would both be playing the Starwood and he should go check them out. Gene hated the name Van Halen and was actually more interested in the boys at first after seeing them play at Gazari's a few nights earlier. Gene and Paul Stanley showed up to listen to the groups, but after hearing both and being wowed by Van Halen with their incredible sound and their energetic live show, he knew that they were the real deal. The singer of the boys said that they knew Simmons was going to be there, so they practiced all day for three days straight before the show and just burnt themselves completely <laughs> out and kind of fucking tanked oh it, it was a botch yeah it was a bad show for him <laughs> yeah. but, but van halen killed it and so halfway through mm-hmm. gene simmons went backstage to wait for the guys and when they came back he introduced himself as gene simmons and actually at this point no one had ever seen kiss without their stage makeup so this surprised the boys that they that he was saying who he was and everything but they took it in stride so they talked to him for a little bit and then he said that he wanted to record an album for him and hopefully do more. This was the big break they had been waiting for. Mm-hmm. The story is kind of funny because they all introduced themselves and apparently at first Gene was just kind of feeling them out and didn't want to give too much away. So he was like, well, I just wanted to come see you guys. And Alex was like mid drink and he just chugged his beer down. And he was like, well, that's fair because we went to see you at the forum at the forum. <laughs> God, the forum. <laughs> at the forum, you know, <laughs> at the forum. <laughs> <laughs> and that ballsy little joke just made Gene laugh and he instantly was like, all right, here's the deal. I want to help you guys. Nice. <laughs> He's like, all right, no fucking around. So, He's like, all right, all right, I like it. Yeah. And so they agreed. And the next day on November 3rd, 1976, they went to the Village Recorders in Santa Monica to start recording some Van Halen originals. Out of all their songs, Gene Simmons picked 13 to record. One thing the band brought to the table, other, of course, than their talent, was a sound effect they had gotten from an old friend, Pete Daughtry, who was a master of electrical engineering, had taken a bunch of old car horns out of cars and then wired them to all play together. He recorded it and then gave it to the band so they could use it as they wished. And Gene heard it and decided that he was going to use it as the intro for Running With The Devil. So freaking cool like sound is actual car horns from a 52 ford station wagon yeah yeah all oh, right in the beginning there oh it's so perfect and he rigged it up so it could be used with a foot switch so they could use it for live shows mm. oh they could variable switch it <laughs> mm. so tight but the thing is it was kind of roth's idea because don't 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 i don't even know it. i don't know but don't don't what was uh, living with Roth and Roth knew he was like a wiring genius. So he asked for a stage prop from all these horns. Yeah. I just need to start looking into like musical, like electrical engineering for sound. I'm pretty (laughs) sure at one point too, um, Michael Anthony, this is kind of a side note, but I'm pretty sure that Michael Anthony could run lights from a foot pedal by his base. Just so, just so that's, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll fact check that before the next episode or when we get into it, but I'm pretty sure that's something he did. So like these guys were just fucking so innovative all across the board. They're so wild. Yeah. Everywhere. I once saw a band that had a second basis, but the bass player didn't have any strings. He actually had a power strip uh, taped to the head, (laughs) to the neck of the guitar and he flipped the switches in time with everyone else and pretended to play while he flipped the switches. That's all he did. He was just timing lights. That's awesome. It was really dumb. That's pretty cool. It was really upsetting. (laughs) 
sugar does that, but they just have the, the light guy do it from a, a thing in the back. Oh, yeah. So they don't have a guy up on stage. So it's like not the, 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 the same at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not the same. Oh, but so it, they have a lighting guy. Yeah. It's, it's the same, but he just sits in the back. Yeah, like dude. A they have like a person. So they yeah. have like a person who like sits in the freaking pit, dude, and he just like will turn up and down the microphones like fucking as needed. Dude. It's like it's like it's like you just hire a guy to stand in the back like a normal person. Yeah. Good lord. Because otherwise we would fucking hate you. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just here for the easy ones. Oh, I love you. I just want to squeeze your cheeks and bring your little neck. <laughs> so they recorded for a day or so at the village, and then Gene had to head back to New York to do things with Kiss. He called the record label to tell them that he had found a hot new band, and they agreed to let the recording continue in New York. So Gene flew the whole band to New York to keep recording. They only had a few days to finish their record as Kiss would have to start promoting their new album, Rock and Roll Over, as soon as it came out on November 11th. So the whole band headed to Electric Lady Records in New York to finish the demo. Uh, just a fun fact, Electric Lady Records was started by Jimi Hendrix. They enjoyed working in the studio, but Gene was trying things they didn't love. He wanted their sound to be bigger, which meant a lot of overdubbing for the band. And uh, for those of you who don't know, overdubbing is where uh, a musician will play the same part over and over, and then they will stack the tracks on top of each other, and it makes the sound sound bigger. Mm -hmm. Eddie didn't want that sound because it couldn't be duplicated live. But since this was his really his first time in the studio, he went along with it anyway. It is the industry. It's pretty much the industry standard at this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it was important back then because Eddie hated it so much that it sets the tone for his future. Like he makes a point specifically of not doing this whenever possible. Right. Which I think is super cool because it translate it, it helps translate his live album or his albums to the live show so perfectly mm -hmm. because it is just the one guitar playing on it. And, and it makes yep. it more duplicatable live. Yeah. And yeah, he, he records the parts specifically so they can be played live uh -huh. so that it sounds the exact same. It's wild. He's wild. He's wild. It still has so much fucking nuts behind him. <laughs> it is very big. So once we were done recording, <laughs> the album was handed off to an engineer to mix and master. And all this happened in under a week. And with that, the album was finished. Gene then took the guy shopping so that he could get some real clothes to meet with the record execs, something Gene thought would help sell their image. Gene also invited them to a kiss practice where the execs would be. The members of KISS had Van Halen play on their instruments to do a little showcase for him. The executives were impressed but still weren't sure. Gene told the band that they should think about changing their name to something a little bit more catchy like Daddy Long Legs to help make them more marketable. Obviously, that didn't take off. Thumbs down. <laughs> and then gave the tape to Bill Alcoin, the exec who would be making the final decision. Bill was also Kiss's manager. He managed a, a lot of other bands, including Man of War and Billy Idol. Fucking love Man of War, brother. Hell yeah. yeah great. I don't know. I don't know a single song by him. <laughs> there we go. That's a, it's fun. Yeah. fun I, I say, I think you'd like it. It's, it's 80s hair metal, right? Uh, yeah, but it's like it's like transitioning to the heavier side at that point. Hell yeah! Ooh, there you go, uh, fair listener. If you feel like listening to that, then 
I don't know what that means. <laughs> so, so Ball Stanley and Alcoin met behind Gene's back and agreed that they were going to pass on the band, likely because they wanted Gene to focus on Kiss and not his new pet project. So Alcoin brought the band into his office and broke the bad news. He said that their songs weren't catchy enough and David wasn't a strong enough singer. He didn't think they had the chops to make it, so he sent him away with no deal in hand. Gene was very surprised by this and apologized profusely to the band. And then he gave them a d- the demo tape that they had made uh, free of charge and said they could do anything they wanted with it. And he said if there was anything that he could do to let them know. Then he sent them all back to California. Gene has said in interviews to this day that he really thinks the decision was not so much about Van Halen and was more just Aqua and, and Kiss worried that his side ventures would take him away from Kiss and the gobs and gobs and gobs and gobs and gobs of money that they were making because this was peak Kiss yeah. time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I do I do have to credit him here though because you know for being such a businessman he did look out for him like mm-hmm. <clears throat> they had signed a contract for his management and he just tore it up told them you know do whatever you can with the demo if you're not signed by the time i'm home from this tour we'll try again and he could have just locked him up with that contract yeah he could have just shut him down they could have done I nothing think and that might be yeah. the best story i've ever heard about gene <laughs> for some bad ones yeah it's like i feel like you don't normally yeah, hear it's normally not good things about gene simmons yeah yeah you don't feel normally hear yeah I think wholesome he's ones yeah <laughs> he's got some bad stories yeah that's fine we'll cover them eventually yeah That'll be a fun. That'll be a fun little series. Yep, someday. So the band was hurt by everything that had transpired, as they thought that their one chance at a record deal was gone. If the biggest name in rock and roll couldn't get them a deal, then who could? Gene did ask Alex and Eddie to work with him once again on some new material, which actually really scared David, as he thought Gene was going to try and poach them for a side band. And the brothers actually declined at first, but eventually they gave in. So the brothers and David went along to the studio to help record some new material. And David wasn't invited, but he brought himself along to make sure that nothing hinky happened. That would be pretty scary being Dave. (laughs) Like, obviously, Dave would not be where he's at without Van Halen. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) They all had to ride each other's coach. (laughs) David was definitely there for it. He was was riding. (laughs) He was riding hard. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, while in the studio, Eddie recorded some backing parts and a solo for Kiss's song, Christine 16. Now, Kiss says that Paul Stanley copied Eddie's solo, and but Paul Stanley played it. But Eddie and others still say that it is him playing on the song. But over time, Gene and Van Halen would see less of each other, and the band would fall back into their own ways, playing wherever, whenever, now thinking that they would be a bar band forever. After listening to some interviews and reading more into it, it really kind of sounds like Gene was maybe trying to slowly work Eddie into Kiss. Yeah. Like Eddie has said that Gene would call him constantly at his parents' house trying to get him to go jam or record or something. And he talks about it with such annoyance that just kills me. Like that's that is a different level of legend. Like being just annoyed at the prospect of joining Kiss in their heyday. God. It's a ballsy move. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of confidence yeah. to be like, I'm no, I'm yeah, not joining yeah. you, Gene Simmons. I'm, I'm in not Kiss and I need you yeah. at this point. 
God, just like, just has friends over. Did I tell you about the gobs and gobs and gobs of money? Yeah. (laughs) Just like, just like Eddie just has like five friends over and they're all just listening to records. And he's like, comes downstairs in a huff and he's like, that's freaking Gene again. Like he just wants me to come play with him. Like such bullshit. If you would just leave me alone, that would be great. (laughs) Yeah. Wild stuff, man. Wild stuff. Yeah. He's not like working at the... Level of energy I'm trying to work with. <laughs> Eddie Van Halen smoked weed every single day of his life. Yeah, he did. I love him. Uh, it's, it's fine. Um, so the band approached a man named Kim Fowley, who was always looking for local talent around the area and had actually been the manager for The Runaways, the band that got Van Halen hooked up with Gene Simmons in the first place. Fowley was nervous to work with the band as they were Gazzari's regulars. And as we said, Gazzari's was the low point of the Sunset Strip, but listened to them anyway because he knew that they were an incredible band. He had some record label connections, so he decided to reach out to him. First, it was Denny Rosencrantz of Mercury Records. Denny agreed to come and watch the band at one of their shows at the Starwood, where he found a crowd of about eight people. <laughs> the band, while huge in the area, still played to small crowds from time to time, because not every show can be a, a banger, mm-hmm. but they always played as though they were headlining a stadium show. Denny made it halfway through the set before telling Fowler that he hated them, and then he left. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> he literally called them an awful band and he said he had no interest in signing Jim Dandy fronting Led Zeppelin. And I can't imagine what he felt like in a few years. <laughs> yeah, what an idiot. Actually, that's something we haven't even talked about is Jim Dandy. We haven't mentioned him once in this whole episode, yeah. which is a uh, honestly, it's probably a, a, a travesty because, Ooh. yeah, uh, Jim Dandy was the the lead vocalist of Black Oak, Arkansas, which was a uh, another band um, in in at this time and like if you look up jim dandy playing you see exactly where uh where david lee roth gets his gets his stage yeah he ripped it pretty hard ripped it pretty hard oh yeah Uh, at one point (laughs) david actually went to a black oak arkansas concert and asked jim dandy if he could record the set and jim dandy was just like yeah i don't care that's fine and (laughs) obvious and then you see that that's where he got a lot of his moves um and he dressed like him whatever everyone said they were that that david lee roth just reminded them of jim dandy so (laughs) there you go but uh i digress Uh, jim dandy fronting led zeppelin sounds awesome i don't (laughs) know why he passed on whatever but uh, (laughs) but kim told the band what happened and they were beat down by it but asked him to keep looking other labels came to check him out, including Herb Alpert from A&M Records. And if that name happens to sound familiar to our regular listeners, Herb Alpert and his partner, Jerry Moss, were the ones who originally signed Waylon Jennings. But mm-hmm. Herb saw no interest in Van Halen, so he also passed. And this went on for quite some time. Yeah, this is a major trend. So many people just turned them down because they literally could not comprehend what they were seeing. And like yeah. when you're so far ahead of the curve that you're on a different plane. People just don't get it. And they decide it's trash. Yeah. It was a, there was many a nights where somebody would tell him, um, whether it be Kim Fowley or other people like, Hey, these record execs are going to come see you tonight. So you got to play your best, whatever. And eventually they were just like, they didn't even listen to him because there were so many times where people just wouldn't show up or they would show up and just immediately bail because they didn't like it. So, yeah. So the, so the band was still, just playing their clubs, doing what they needed to do. Um, and they actually had been asked to play the Whiskey Go-Go in November 1976 by Marshall Burrell, who was the venue's 
booking agent. His uncle was Milton Berle, so he's very connected. <laughs> yeah, very popular uh, comedian. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Marshall Burl, Marshall Burl um, also managed some pretty big bands. I don't want to say any off the top of my head, but yeah, I think yeah. he's a pretty big manager. Um, so he, he called Fowley and, and Fowley suggested the band. And so they were hired after Burl saw them at another concert where thousands of people showed up to see the band. They upped their stage performance even more by enlisting the help of the whiskey lighting guy who set up the whole lighting show for him and would actually join them on uh, later tours when they got bigger. Good lighting is definitely a game changer in the music scene at this mm-hmm. point. Oh, it's I can I can attest from my <clears throat> years in the in the um in the theater scene, lighting takes up about 60% of setup. God. When mm. you have to set, it's it's all about setting up lights, getting them yeah. perfect, testing Timing. them, everything. It's yeah. it's a big deal. And and as everyone who has been to a concert or a, or a live uh, a theater event, it, it, lighting will make or break a, a, an event. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. You're right. So now they were playing at the Whiskey and this would really help their chances of getting a record deal as the whiskey was a huge place for bands who were about to take off. They eventually left Gazaris as the bookings at the whiskey became more common, which actually saddened the band a lot as they enjoyed the little venue and the owner. Marshall, who was now helping the band, got them a gig in January 1977, opening for Santana at the Long Beach Arena, where they would open up for a crowd of 13,000 people, the biggest they had ever seen, and they weren't signed at the time. This was a huge get. They were introduced, and then they killed the show. But for the first time, Eddie didn't outdo the headlining act. It's it's pretty hard to outdo a man who can play his set completely tripping his balls off on acid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Santana, that's a that is a different level that you really can't top. Like mm. I would say you could say that Eddie eventually does, but not not my much, right? Yeah. yeah. They're just both incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But- I mean, different different types of incredible. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Well, and also like Tony said, they crushed the show, but the crowd made sure that Van Halen knew who they were really there to see. Oh yeah, though basically the whole time they were playing, the the band heard just the crowd just chanting Santana. Santana. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it said before they even played a note. People were like, Santana, <laughs> biggest <laughs> biggest audience they heard and that or have ever played to, and that's 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 the welcome they got. But what do you? They do? didn't care. Yeah. They just they did it. Obviously, David Lee Roth uh, did his thing and 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 yeah, showed the crowd what they're made of. So after the I show, I mean, if I was them, I would probably would have been like, yeah, I can't wait to fucking be done so I can watch Santana. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's true. No freaking kidding. Well, it's kind of funny. And it's kind of a the first song that that um that that Van Halen heard David Lee Roth play was Evil Ways mm-hmm. by Santana. Yep. So it's pretty it's just full circle, man. So after the yep. show, Marshall knew that he had to get these guys on a label. So he set up a showcase show. He booked the Starwood for February second and third without telling the band that he had a bigger picture in mind for these two nights. The band thought it was just going to be a couple of regular shows. He then called Warner Brothers Studios to try and get someone there. And he got Ted Templeton on the phone and said that he had a showcase lined up and Ted had to come see this hot new band. Ted agreed and showed up on February 2nd. The crowd was small, but the band put on their standard killer performance and Ted was amazed by these guys. He was indifferent about David. He liked Alex and Michael, but he was floored by Eddie. He said that he was the best musician Ted had ever seen in his life. 
He went back to the offices the next day and told Mo Austin, the president of Warner Brothers, about the band. No one knew Templeman was at the show. Like he snuck in through the back and he kind of had a surfer thing going on. So no one knew that he was an exec. And he said he watched them and was just completely entranced and was like, I'm not going to say a word to these guys until I can come back with the guy that can sign them on yeah. the spot. Yeah, he had to sell them right there. When when yeah. he was able to, he didn't want to get their hopes up before he could do something. You got so. no way to hold. <laughs> no way so the label hold. had apparently heard of them. They actually even had a copy of the Gene Simmons tape that they had heard. So Ted took Mo to the next night showing, where they again watched the band blow them away. Burl actually mentioned to the band that they were going to have some execs there to see them, but the band shrugged it off, as we said, because they had heard it plenty of times and nothing had come of it. But as Ted and Mo listened to him, Mo turned to Ted and simply said, they sound like money. And with that, on their end, the deal was done. Yeah, Mo was drawn to them especially hard because he already liked heavier music and on top of that, he's the guy that signed the kinks and brought them to America. So hearing Van Halen's rend- rendition of You Really Got Me just floored him. And I mean, this is already kind of one of those covers that shadows the original a bit. So yeah, it's kind of kismet. It's just 100% divine. That's That's got to be so sweet for Mo. Like, it's just got to be so cool to yeah. Yeah, have him see that, whatever. But, um, but after the show, the three men, Mo, Ted, and Marshall Burl, went backstage to talk to the band who were in their dressing room drinking beers and shooting the shit. Like we said, they didn't care that these guys were there. They didn't even think the guys were going to show up. So the three men walked in and told them they did a great job. Then Mo and Ted told them that they wanted to sign the band and they should think about hiring Marshall Burl as their full-time manager. The band was shocked by all of this. They had waited so long to hear this. And now here they were in a small, poorly lit, rinky green room with executives from Warner Brothers with a verbal agreement on the table. The band actually said that they would have to think about it. But the next day, the label called the Van Halen household and again told them that they were interested in signing with Warner Brothers. And they wanted to know if Van Halen was in. But they didn't know that the band had talked about it. And about 10 minutes after Ted and Mo left, they agreed that they were going to do it. So Alex said yes. And hours later, they were in the Warner Brothers office with a letter of intent in front of them for a two album contract. Not the best contract ever though ah. a, little for, a little foreshadowing yeah. i like it <laughs> strap in you want to see a band almost get boned to the teeth <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to the teeth <laughs> yeah, that's a bad place to get boned to bad my guy. Oh, yeah tell you <laughs> so finally after 10 years of playing five to six nights a week every week any place you could imagine for thousands and thousands of people, Van Halen was signed to a major label and ready to record their official debut album. And that is where we are going to pick it up for Van Halen Part 2 here on On In 5. Hit the ground running chain. Now this stays the same. I just want to get into it. I just want to get into it. I know. I want to keep going. I'm already so excited. This was a lot of of work, a lot of reading, a lot of outlines. But man, it was so fun. God's so fun. All right. Well, we are. This record time is just this at two minutes, in. so we're going to just go ahead and wrap it up because you guys don't give a shit about the <laughs> You just want to hear the next part it's when true. it comes down two weeks. So if you want to find us on social You've already media, turned it off. So. <laughs> you know how to do that. We're on five everything. We've got a website. We're on five. We've got a Patreon. Please donate. 
if you want to. If you don't want to, that's totally fine too. But your money goes to help us pay for the hosting site and buy books. So thank you for the people who do donate to our Patreon. If you want to find me anywhere, it doesn't matter. If you want to find Ethan anywhere, it does not matter. Doesn't if you fucking want to find matter. Us anywhere, it doesn't who matter. Who fucking cares? Please. <laughs> Please like and review us on iTunes. I actually kind of wanted what? to get my what? stuff. What so. do you have, Austin? What 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 shows are you playing, get, Austin? I kind of want to get Straight my up. social media. Fuck so. off. <laughs> if you want to like and review us on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts, please do that. That helps us get seen a little bit more. If you review us and then send us a picture of your review, we will send you a little thank you package, stickers, and a handwritten letter. Hell, we may even put a dirty pair of underwear in there. We don't know. <laughs> Who fucking we're, knows? We're freaking flying by the seat of our pants. I lately, do. So. I do have two letters. Letters written for two uh, our, our two Patreons, and I, I have intended to send them, and I haven't yet. That's so eventually, great. I'm going to send Weeks them. Weeks later, months later. That's Who cares? Fine. All right. So we will see you for part two of Van Halen. Thank you so much for listening. Um, be safe out there, everyone. Please be safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Namaste. 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 Namaste.